0: we're going to look at today so let's hear it for emily she comes and then let's hear it for Simon when he comes up after thank you
1: thanks dan this is daniel chapter 11 starting from verse 2 now then i tell you the truth three more kings will arise in persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others when he has gained power by his wealth he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of greece Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father, and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place, He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times many will arise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist, Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but the commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded, by a contemplatable person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power." When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his father nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army But he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provision will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other but to no avail. Because an end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth. But his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastland will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by a woman. Nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of foreign gods and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end of the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry, cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hands. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Kushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him and we will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him.
0: Let's hear it for Emily. That's a long reading. Well done, Emily. (laughs) Wow, I thought if I read that tonight, you'd have to listen to me far too long. So, thank you, Emily, for reading that so well. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I didn't put it on the screen because I wanted you to focus on what was being read this evening, but we're going to kind of whistle-stop tour through Daniel chapter 11. So, if you have a Bible on your phone, or if you have a normal kind of hard copy, then I would just encourage you to get it out because I'm not going to be able to go through verse by verse unless you want to stay here for the next few hours. So, lots to say in that. There's lots in here. We're on this exciting journey looking... Uh, the book of Daniel. We're nearing the end. We're in Daniel chapter 11. Do you know how any chapters are in Daniel? 12, yeah. So we're on the second last chapter. And just as we're kind of thinking about Daniel chapter 11, I just want to start with a story. And I've actually shared this story before, um, but I want to share it again, I suppose, to introduce tonight's topic and, and to give us a bit of thought as we... Uh, do that. So I'm going to show you a photo. This is an updated photo from last time, but hopefully you will see a lovely photo of my son. Here we go. Cue photo. There we go. (laughs) That's the right response, isn't it? This is uh, Joshua Isaac Ewan. Uh, Many of you will have met him. Some of you maybe have just seen uh, pictures of him or this picture of him. Um, But some of you will not know the story that kind of lies behind uh, him and uh, how he came to be. So I just want to share that with you this evening. And for those that have heard it, um, you can uh, be encouraged by this. Uh, Helen and I, a number of years ago, have been trying for uh, children for a number of years. And uh, when things didn't seem to be progressing the way we thought, Uh, We started to really talk to God, seek God about having a baby, as well as doing practical things, getting tests done, and other things like that. Uh, There came a moment where Helen and I, I suppose in a way, decided to put down, and for those that have tried for babies or had babies before, you'll know what these things are all of the planning that comes with having a baby, all of your ovulation charts, and all those kind of things. And we decided, you know what? We need to just trust God for the right outcome. And when it still didn't seem to be happening, I remember praying, God, I trust you, I trust you, I believe in you, but would you speak into the situation that we're going through? And that was about uh, December 2015. O- on the 8th of January, 2016, I got a text from my dad, which kind of went like this. This is the exact copy. Dear Samuel, I had a strange experience this morning and do, do not want to read too much into it, but reading Nikki Gumbel's app today, nothing is too hard for the Lord. God's promise to Abraham and Sarah was, this time next year, you shall have a son. And you and Helen came so forcibly into my mind as if it was also a promise for you. I know it could be wishful thinking, but I felt I should share it with you. Love that. And then I wrote a response. This is what I said. Hi, Dad, this is very touching to read and also a rise of faith came in my soul when I read it. God has been speaking to Helen and I recently about trusting him and also about holding on to his promises. Primarily, we walk by faith, not by sight. And the verse, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Thanks for the encouragement. Dad. So... Just on this thought, it's good to share a note. We need to be careful when we're sharing prophetic words or even just pictures, in particular about children and marriage. I wouldn't necessarily encourage that. So, even from the front uh, at the end of the service, when we encourage time and space for prayer, we, we, we often say to our leaders when it comes to big words, especially like children and marriage, maybe this evening is not the context for that, and maybe to share that with the elders before you share that with people. That's just a note. But bearing in mind, my dad had been a pastor for a number of years. He told me to weigh it himself, and also had taken a number of uh, days to think about it, whether he should share. He did. And what happened on the back of that was, for Helen and I, really just Gave us an encouragement. It's like God spoke into our situation about the future. And as you'll see in a moment, Daniel chapter 11 is all about God speaking into the future. After that moment, uh, two other events that came about before uh, we discovered that Helen was pregnant in uh, kind of March, May, in fact, sorry, June time, 2016. Um, We were at an elders' meeting. Um, Elders and elders' wives were there. Uh, Helen was at a a conference, so she couldn't make it. And Andrea, I don't know if you know this, but your wife shared a picture with us. And uh, she thought it was a picture for the Leith Church. And it was a picture of Helen and I standing in kind of like a portrait uh, with a photographer taking a picture and holding a baby. And she thought it was something to do with, you know, maybe, I don't know, new birth in, in Leith. But actually, we felt it was a picture from God about... Uh, Joshua, who was to come. That same uh, weekend, Helen was at a, a conference, and God really spoke to her specifically saying this, I want you to stop asking, and I want you to start thanking, just saying thank you. And we discovered amazingly that the next week after that, that Helen was 10 weeks pregnant. Amazing. Just as God had spoken, this time Next year, you'll have a son. And uh, you may have seen, well, 8th of January, 2016. Joshua was born in February, 2017. Amazing. God is a God who sees into the future. God is a God who can predict what's going to happen in the future. God is a God who sometimes in his sovereignty reveals the future to his people at particular times for his own eternal purposes. And when we come to look at Daniel chapter 11, it actually contains one of the most specifically fulfilled prophecies of the entire Bible. Uh, It's a chapter that predicts 375 years of history and actually even to end time uh, history with amazing accuracy. And the chapter is actually so specific that many critics of the Bible uh, who deny kind of prophetic words or supernatural revelation have insisted that its history, or sorry, that um, Daniel chapter 11 is not a prophetic word predicting the future, but it's actually history that was written as if it was written before fraudulently claiming to be prophecy. Um, We don't have time tonight um, to kind of unpack the reasons for that and the evidences, but let me just throw out a couple of things just to get us thinking about that. The first thing is this. Daniel, the book of Daniel, claims to be a prophecy, claims to be a prediction into the future, okay? So it doesn't pretend, it doesn't uh, pretend to be, it, it makes the bold claim that this is a prediction, this is a prophecy into the future, Uh, And so that's the claim of the book of Daniel. Another thing just to throw out there, in 1947, uh, a significant moment took place um, in a place called Qumran, where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anyone heard of that? And in that discovery, they found... Most of the books of the Old Testament, in fact, Daniel was the most prolific one. It had every chapter except chapter 12, but there were, um, what do you call it, quotes from Daniel chapter 12 in some of the other writings. But it had most of the chapters, in fact, all the chapters apart from chapter 12, and most of the um, writings in each of those chapters. But what that did, and again, I can't go into all the evidence, you can look this up online, but it, it basically cancelled the argument that Daniel was written later uh, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the dates that they were given, and also who had written them. Basically, they were canonized by this point. People saw them as authoritative. You see this in the Dead Sea Scrolls writings. And basically, the argument from scholars is actually that the time scales don't work if you place Daniel later on. You have to place it before all of these events happen, therefore making Daniel true, reliable, and actually part of prophecy and supernatural revelation. Go and look that up online at the end of this. Isaiah 44, 6 and 7 says this, this is what the Lord says, I am the first and the last. There is no other God who is like me. Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done since the ancient times when I established the people and explained its future. Daniel chapter 11 gives a selective yet detailed overview of the flow, flow of history from the time of Daniel, that's about the late 6th century BC, until, actually right up until our time and further into the future. And so what I want to do, and again, we don't have time to kind of go through, I would love to take a number of hours just to unpack each verse and explain in history where these things fit, but I'm going to have to give a whistle stop tour. So get your Bibles out, just have them ready so that at least you can flick through. If you have a study Bible at home, I would really encourage you this week just to go through it. A good study Bible will give you all of the notes and show you how Daniel 11 actually marries up amazingly accurately with history. But Daniel chapter 11 can be split into kind of four categories, if you like, of history, okay? So first of all, he talks about the division of the Greek empire, and we've looked at this in other parts of Daniel before, but Daniel, verse, Daniel 11 verses 2 to 4, we have the division of the Greek empire, and you'll see these categories come up on the PowerPoint. Then you'll see uh, the second category or the second kind of piece of history that Daniel goes into is a piece of history that includes the kings of the north. We heard a lot about them and the kings of the south. Okay, we'll explain that in a wee moment. Then we have this part of history where Daniel makes this prediction of a contemptible person or a vile person in other uh, um, translations. And we know from history, this is the prediction of a not very nice guy called Antiochus IV, otherwise known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And we hear a little bit more about what he did. And then the last part of the prophecy actually takes, and it's very difficult, it's very subtle, but it takes a shift and it starts to talk about things concerning the last days, some things concerning uh, the Antichrist. So we're gonna look at some of these things and see how we get on this evening and then look at some things we can learn. So here we go. First of all then, the division of the Greek empire. The angel tells Daniel that there will be three more kings in Persia until a fourth arises. We read that at the beginning. And then he goes on to say, the fourth king will be a strong, rich king and oppose uh, the realm of Greece. And this strong, rich fourth king was fulfilled in the Persian king Xerxes. I don't know if that's even how you say it. Anyone seen the, the film 300. Yeah, and you see that Persian army, and I don't think it's historically accurate, that Persian army that comes, and then there's that weird kind of transvestite king, you know, that kind of king, the Persian king, remember him? And and he's kind of got a bald head, you know what I mean? You know who I'm talking about? That is Xerxes, okay? That's who he is. Xerxes turns up in another part of the Bible because he's the guy that marries Esther. So this is part of history. So the fourth king was fulfilled in the Persian king Xerxes. And these visions and insights regarding the future of the the Persian and Greek empires were were relevant, and Daniel puts them in here, and God reveals them to Daniel, because actually in these, both the, the Persian empire and the Greek empire, at some point or another in this close history, try to wipe out God's people. So in the Persian empire, we have that story in Esther where Haman tries to wipe out God's people. Uh, We'll see later on in a moment moment, that Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes tries to wipe out the Jewish uh, people um, as part of the Greek Empire. So we see this rise of three kings, then a fourth king comes in Exerxes, and then we see Daniel, uh, the angel tells Daniel of a mighty king with a great dominion will suddenly take over and start. To rule, and, and we know, and we've looked at this in Daniel before, it's kind of a, a more in depth prophecy of this. We see that fulfilled in Alexander the Great, and we'll just show you an image behind me. This is Alexander the Great, or a, a statue of him, and his kind of conquering of the known world at that time. And if you go in your history books, you'll, you'll know about this, but it was phenomenal what he did. Traveling from Greece, he literally conquered the entire known world. And he died at the height of his power, just as this prediction and this prophecy puts. He was 32 years of age. He died of a fever, apparently, after a drunken party in Babylon. He didn't die in battle. And in the absence of any legitimate heirs, following the death of Alexander the Great, his kingdom was divided into four. Four of his generals divided the conquered territory of his empire into quarters. And so, we have kind of four kings ruling, and actually by 277 BC, they say that three of these kingdoms, they call them Hellenistic kingdoms, that just means the time after Alexander the Great, up until the Roman Empire, three of these kingdoms existed, okay? Let me tell you what they are. I've got another map for you. This is a bit of a history lesson. We've got the first one, the Antigonid, I don't know if I've said that right, Empire, Okay? We have the Seleucid Empire, and then we've got the Telemic Empire, okay? And just to help you, the Seleucid Empire is the king and the kings of the north, and the Telemic Empire is the kings of the south. You got that? So the king of the north kind of ruled Assyria and all that kind of area, Persia, The Telemic Empire kind of uh, was the kind of Egypt and that kind of surrounding area. So the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And the rest of this prophecy kind of focuses on two of the four inheritors of Alexander the Great's dynasty. The kings of the north, the kings of the south. And they focus, the, the prophecy focuses on this because you'll probably see from the map. Can you see Jerusalem. Yeah? The kings of the north and the kings of the south constantly fought, and you'll see that right in the middle was Jerusalem. Right in the middle was the promised land. Right in the middle of all this kind of battles that were going on was God's people, and so this prophecy focuses on that because God wants to reveal to them what things are going to happen. So secondly then, we have the kings of the north and the kings of of the south and this is where it goes into lots of kind of detail and again i don't have time to look at this but again if you go to a good study bible it will show you all of the different details all of the people in history that have made each of these verses uh, come true and happen but what happens is there's kind of i think the, the the north and the south fought for about 130 years and when the Seleucids were doing well they kind of took over jerusalem and ruled it uh, and when the, Telemic, the the southern kings and kingdoms were doing well, they would take over Jerusalem. And this battle kind of went on for about 130 years. The stronger of the two always held the dominion over Jerusalem. And so right the way through to verse, kind of from verse 5 to verse 21, uh, we hear of the, the kings of the north fighting the kings of the south. Then there's sometimes in there, there's a marriage trying to kind of, someone giving their daughter or their hopefully not their wife, but their daughter or someone in their family to kind of try and bridge the gap or to stop them warring. And then it doesn't work out. And then there's kind of some more fighting and some more warring. And this kind of goes back and forward, back and forward, the south winning, the north winning, the north gaining victory, and then control of Jerusalem, and then the south taking over again. And you can see all of, uh, through history, how that actually plays out. And then we come to this part, kind of from verse 21, where it says in our verses, this vile person or contemptible person suddenly comes into the forefront. And in verse 21, we read about how God's people received their most degrading attack when this ruler known as Antiochus Epiphanes comes to the throne. We hear in, through the verses before that he fails to conquer the king of the south in Egypt, and he gets defeated and as part of that it, kind of with his tail between his legs he's he's really angry and embittered by losing this battle and what he does is at the end of it all he kind of comes and he kind of starts to if you like pour out all of his anger and all of his bitterness on God's people and actually what happens in the defeat to the southern king in Egypt we know from history that that was uh, he was defeated because the, the Romans helped and that was actually the start of the Roman Empire starting to get uh, control of the entire region. But as part of this defeat that Antiochus had experienced, it says in verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, we know from history, and we've mentioned this a little bit over the other passages and chapters that we've looked at, but Antiochus Epiphanes actually marched into Jerusalem, and and because he was so raging at losing this battle, he kind of takes over Jerusalem. He desiccates uh, the temple. He sets up an image of Zeus at the temple altar. Uh, He demands a sacrifice to this image, and apparently later on, uh, in kind of total disregard to the Jewish people uh, sacrifices a pig and continues to sacrifice pigs on god 's altar and Then he turns on the Jewish people uh, and apparently uh, he kills eighty thousand Jews he takes forty thousand more as prisoners, and he sells another forty thousand as slaves and he plunders the entire Jewish temple which is equivalent today of robbing it of approximately $1 billion. Wow. And if you know your history, this event actually precipitated what was known as the Maccabean Revolt. If you've heard of the books Maccabees, Maccabees 1, Maccabees 2, you've heard of um, Hanukkah and the Festival of Light and that whole celebration. Dan mentioned that a few times weeks ago. That is where that fits into history. After Antiochus Epiphanes had done this event, the Maccabeans kind of rose up and decided, you know what, we're not taking us And they kind of fought against this and actually was, were to, able to establish Jewish rule for about 100 years. And then right in that moment, we have this famous battle in Pompeii where the Roman general Pompeii defeats the other existing generals. And in this moment, we have the rule of Rome and the Roman Empire. Right at the end of this prophecy, coming into kind of verse 36, it seems like it's the same thing, but it actually makes and takes a shift, and the vision seems to shift focus and address a situation that transcends the persecution under Antiochus into something into the future. And many people believe the rest of the chapter chapter is actually describing uh, the Antichrist, which is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians and Revelation 13. And the angel explains to Daniel that he will be someone who blasphemes God, who exalts himself, who will take uh, and hold par with military might and, and have great riches. Uh, and then the angel kind of describes this moment uh, and points to the end of time, of this some kind of big battle that will happen uh, near the Holy Land. And, you know, we could get confused and boiled up with all these kind of different things that people make in these verses. But And and all I want to say in this moment is it's very difficult to know where this lands in history. It's very difficult to know what exactly is going to happen. You know, is it going to be Donald Trump? Is it going to be Russia? You know, people like to do all that kind of stuff. Let's not go there, okay? But there is this moment, it seems to be, where these... This battle takes place. And right at the end, God comes back and returns. So that's Daniel chapter 11. Should we go home now? (laughs) I don't know about you. Apart from asking the question, why on earth am I preaching on this chapter? Maybe you read that verse or listened to that chapter and you think, why on earth does God put that into the Bible. Why does he reveal that to Daniel? Why does that he reveal that to his people? Why does he reveal Daniel chapter eleven? To us? why does he reveal all that history? Well, let me just throw out a few thoughts uh, that would give us some thinking and hopefully some application. Four things, just very quickly. Firstly, in all of this kind of Daniel chapter eleven passage, we learn about the providence of God. God in his providence, we learn, sets up one, pulls down another as he pleases. The, the providence just means the, the act of sustaining and governing our universe. And what this passage, what the book of Daniel, but particularly chapter 11, teaches us is that God is in control. God is in control. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it, Sometimes in his control, it seems like this dodgy, vile person takes charge. It seems like even in his providence that some terrible things seem to happen to his people, but God is still in control. God is still sovereign. He's sovereign over the universe. He's sovereign over the physical world. He's sovereign over the affairs of nations and human destiny and human successes and failures. He's sovereign over the protection of his people. This kind of doctrine or theology stands against this idea of of fate and things kind of just happening by chance. No, God is in control. And Daniel chapter 11 is continually telling us that, predicting that, encouraging us in that. I don't know about you, but you often ask that question. Why does God put that person in place, that leader in place? Why did God let that person win that election? Why does God put this person in the leader? Why does he let them stay there? Why did he pull that good leader down? All these kind of questions you might ask about history. I'm sure we ask the same of Daniel chapter 11. But in and all, Daniel chapter 11 encourages that God is provident and he's in control. Nothing happens to you ever by chance. Think about that for a moment. Nothing happens to you that God does not allow. Nothing happens to you that God doesn't know is going to happen. Now, for some of us, that's, that's really encouraging. So something, maybe you've had some things happen this week and you think, that's just God allowing that to happen. Maybe he's blessed you somewhere and you think, wow, God, God has ordained that. He's In his providence, he's allowed that. He's accepted that. He, he's done those things for me. That's amazing. But the thing about the providence of God is also, there are things that will have happened in your life that you think, Really? Think about it for a moment, seriously, because this this puts lots of really difficult questions. Somehow God was in control despite 40,000 Jews losing their lives. Apparently God was still in control of the universe when the Holocaust happened. And the future predicts that something maybe even more terrible might happen again. And I don't know about you, but that starts to get me into a place where I'm like, okay, I I don't really understand. I don't get that, God. All these kings that come and go and all the the turmoil that they cause and all the problems that, that, that happen, I think, God, what were you doing? And yet, Daniel 11 tells us God is in control. And he is turning it and he's working it for our eternal purposes. Mike Pilavachi said like this, a life of faith isn't one free from all doubt. It's one where we keep expecting God to be faithful in the midst of our questions. And I want to throw out a thought. For some of you guys, you've had something pretty horrendous happen to you in your life. (laughs) And there's definitely going to be moments where you think, If God is totally in control, how does he allow that to happen? And tonight, I don't actually have an answer for you. But I do want to tell you that he still is in control. And Romans 8, 28, just as it says, he is somehow, I don't know how, he is somehow working it for your good. Somehow, even that terrible thing, even that wrong thing, even that thing that God hates, somehow, He turns it around for His good and for your good. Secondly, Daniel chapter 11 tells us this world is full of wars and fighting, and they're the result of men and women and their pride. We see in Daniel chapter 11 again and again, just one person after another rising into power and with their big fat ego trying to take over the world. And, you know, it can be quite depressing kind of reading that and and maybe even looking at our recent history, it can be quite depressing. You know, I was thinking today, if you are 100 years old, anyone here 100? No? Okay. But if you were 100... Here's some of the things, some of the wars that you would have been alive for. The First World War, still. The Second World War. The Cold War, although it wasn't really a war. The Korean War. The Vietnam War. The Gulf War. The war in Congo. The Falklands War. The war in Afghanistan. Uh, the war in Nigeria. Northern Irish Troubles. The, there's been more people killed in the 20th century than all the other centuries before. The reason I throw that out is because some people think this world is getting better. Some people think that somehow as human beings, we're kind of self-coaching ourselves to be better people, nicer people, that aren't going to fight with each other. The problem is, recent history tells us something different. Sometimes we believe that you know, we're going to evolve somehow that we never want to fight each other. But the Bible says we are rebellious. The Bible says we're rebellious against God and rebellious against others. And actually, the history is heading towards the world getting darker, but here's the good news, the church getting brighter. And if you don't grasp that, you will find it difficult to come to terms in the darkness that you see in this world. And it will drive you to despair. It will drive you either to despair or to cynicism. But it is the gospel and only the gospel that tells me that Jesus died for rebellious men and women. Praise God. He died for you. He died for me. Even in our rebellion. Thirdly, Nearly done. This chapter in chapter 11 tells us that God is sovereign. In this chapter, as elsewhere, kings assert themselves, they seek their own interests, they even oppose God and his people, and while in the midst of it all, they accomplish what God has purposed. Try and work that out. All the changes and revolutions of states that you've seen in this world and that we see in Daniel chapter 11 were plainly and perfectly foreseen by the God of heaven. God is in control of human history, folks, including the events which occur in Daniel chapter 11, and including the events that we sometimes, when we switch on our TVs, see. And the degree of detail depicted here about the future events in this chapter reveals that God is in control. He knows what's going to happen. And such an assurance of God's control of history would have been profoundly relevant for Daniel's day. Think about it. Daniel is in exile. In Daniel 11.1, 1, we see that Judah was about to be restored from exile. So God's people were about to go back to Jerusalem, but they weren't really going to be free. In fact, they were going to be subject to the Persians. We've looked at that then to Alexander's Greeks. Then after that, they would be caught up in the middle between the heirs of Alexander uh, Alexander the Great's generals, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, or whatever they're called. And in and of it all, God's people must have been thinking, what the heck are you doing, God? What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. You told us that our nation would be Blessed to be a blessing. That all the nations on the earth would be blessed through us. What are you playing at? And yet, in and of it all, God saw all this period of history. And yet, just at the right time, he sent his son Jesus. In the back end town of nowhere. God stepped into our world to change the course of history. Romans 5 6 puts it like this You see, at just the right time, God's timing, perfect timing, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's the thing He did that for you, He orchestrated events. So that somehow all of these wars would have happened. Rome would have finally conquered. There would have been peace for a moment. Roads around the nations. And in that moment God thought perfect timing and he sends Christ. And so we have the history of the church, etc, etc. And in God's providence, in his sovereignty, he saw us. He saw the church. He saw rebellious people. And he sent his Son. And he did that because he loves you. He did that because he's mad about you. He did that because he thought of you. Daniel chapter 11 is explaining all these things and explaining all these important moments And I I just want to throw out this thought, maybe you've never opened your heart fully up to God before. Maybe you've never taken that step. Maybe you've never made that decision. I, I just want to throw out tonight, maybe tonight's the night. Maybe tonight's the night. We always in our services give an opportunity for people to respond just to what we've been sharing and to what we've been singing. But maybe tonight you need to take that step. God died for you for your sin, for your rebellion, so that you might have an eternal relationship with Him. Lastly, and finally, Daniel chapter 11 tells us when God speaks, it will always be accomplished. When God speaks, His Word always gets accomplished. No word of God falls to the ground, but what he has declared shall always come to pass. The prophecy of Daniel 11 tells us of certain things that would happen, and as we see from history, they did, and as we'll see in the future, somehow they will. But Isaiah 55, 11, you'll know this verse well if you've ever read Isaiah. It says this, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's Word is dependable. God's Word is dependable. As you read the Bible, Daniel chapter 11 is one example of that, but as you read God's Word, there'll be things, promises in there that God's given you, things that God has revealed to us in there that we can depend on, And you know, it's important to read it. It's good to study it. It's great to meditate and memorize it. But the greatest blessing actually comes when we obey it. And when we say, God, I believe your word to the point where I'm willing to depend upon it. And I want to throw out as well, you know, maybe you've received a promise from God and it will never be in contradiction to the Bible. that's how we weigh prophecy or words from people. Maybe God's given you a prophecy about the future, a prediction about something that's going to happen in your life. Here's one I want to say tonight. If it's God, it will come to pass. If it's God, it will come to pass. And so, as always tonight, we're going to go into a time of worship. And I don't actually know what the plan is the rest of tonight, but I think it would be good just to give space for God to speak this evening. Are you up for that? And maybe for some of you guys who sense a a gifting and prophecy, maybe God wants to stir you tonight to share something for the church. Maybe He's just going to share and it's just for you. That's okay. Maybe there'll be moments at the end where you you you're, you're praying for people, and God just gives you a picture to share, uh, an encouragement for that person. I want you just to step out in that and, and get them to weigh it, weigh it against God's word. If it doesn't contradict it, then say to them, "Look, I think God might be saying this. Will you go away and pray about it? Weigh it up. Maybe talk to one of your pastors or small group leaders. That's a good way of doing it. Let's pray." Father, I want to thank you so much that in the craziness of our world, you are in control. Father, I want to thank you tonight that Daniel chapter 11 encourages us that despite the affairs of men, despite the rebelliousness of kings, despite God, what's going on in the world around us, that, Father, your eternal purposes will come to pass. Nothing will thwart you. And, Father, we're grateful today. It gives us confidence, God, that even when stuff touches our lives, that we can be secure in the fact that your word is dependable. And your word tells us that whatever touches our lives, God, somehow in your sovereignty, somehow in your providence, you're turning it for our good. Somehow. So God, for people tonight who may be in that challenging battle of holding this stuff that's touching their lives and saying, how does that work with a loving, wonderful, good God? pray tonight, God, that you would just meet them. Meet them tonight, God, in your presence. Meet them. Father, I pray that we would be people of the word, depending on your word, reading your word and saying, God, I trust you. I'm willing to bet my life on that. I'm willing to put my entire life on what you've promised. Father, in it all, might we just like Daniel live a life of influence, live a life where we surpass a number of kings, live a life, God, where despite all the turmoil around, Daniel stood for you, he lived for you, and he made a difference in his generation. And so, Father, might we do the same this week? Commission us afresh, God. to the mission and the calling that you have on our lives.